We're talking today uh, from our last chapter of the book of Zechariah, Your Kingdom Come. When Jesus taught us to pray, Your Kingdom Come, it wasn't just meant to be just a little prayer that we just kind of pray and say we think we kind of know what that means. The kingdom has already come in some measure, in some respect, in some measure of power. The kingdom is already, and yet the kingdom is not here yet as well. So it's a, it's a both and. So when we pray, we're saying, Lord, bring your power into my life. Let your, your rule and your reign, Lord, let it come into my life. Lord, I want to see you. Continue to um, be Lord in my life. Continue to rule in my life. Lord, these are the things that I'm looking for, for you to do even currently right now. But we're also looking forward to a time when Christ comes. And the kingdom, as it were, comes crashing into this world in a physical form that we can even see more readily. Right now we have politicians that are in charge of America. Some of them seem to be okay, some of them not okay. We have dictators around the world. We have all sorts of different types of politicians. And the Bible tells us that we are looking for a day when the world has peace, complete global peace. So we're looking for a kingdom, a real kingdom here on this earth. We're looking for a real king a king to come and establish this global peace where all religions, all false religions are finally put aside. Where there's no more Islam, no more Buddhism, Roman Catholicism, and the false gospel that it has taught finally comes to a crashing halt. We're actually praying for this. This is what we are looking for. A real kingdom here on this real earth with a real king. And uh, our spirits groan. We say, Lord, we are, we are waiting. We are anticipating you to actually bring a real kingdom here. When the disciples said, Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom? He did not rebuke them. The Lord did not rebuke them and say, what are you talking about? We don't believe in the kingdom. The kingdom is just some spiritual aspect of Christianity. No, no, that's not what he said. He said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. That's established with the Father only. But he did not rebuke them for their understanding that there would come a true kingdom. A time when there are no more politicians that are dealing deceitfully. But there is truth from Sea to sea, where every country is established in the truth, where politicians are dealing in righteousness and in true justice. And we groan, we wait for this day. We say, Lord, bring the kingdom in. Lord, would you come and would you rule and would you, would you reign in this physical way, the establishment of the millennium? Now, there's a lot of talk. In fact, we have talked recently about exactly how this is going to happen because we are talking here about the Lord's return and how is he going to return. And there's 
There are different um, orthodox theories out there. That is, good Christians disagree on this matter. And, uh, in fact, they, they disagree greatly uh, to a large extent. In fact, if you want to get a, a good debate going on among Christians, start to talk about eschatology, that is, the study of last things. But the Bible does talk about a millennium. And so the question is, the Bible talks about this, this rule of a thousand years when Christ is going to reign here on the earth as king. There's no clearer text than the text that we have in front of us, Zechariah chapter 14. And also Revelation chapter 20 is even a clearer text regarding the millennium. I want to lay out for you here just a, a couple ways that uh, people, a few different ways that people are thinking about the Lord's return. In recent years, there has been, and there are still many Christians, and perhaps you're seated here, and this is, um, this is what you have been taught, and perhaps this is what you believe. But the teaching is that the next thing that we are waiting for on the um, prophetic calendar is for this secret return. And so Christ comes, uh, and he's not visible, but he catches the church away, and uh, we disappear for seven years. This is, uh, this is called dispensational theology, where the church is uh, waiting for the Lord, and all of a sudden he comes, but not every eye sees him. In fact, we disappear, and this is um, where we have movies like Left Behind. All of a sudden, pilots are out of their airplanes, and people are leaving their cars unattended, and so you have cars crashing in the streets and this kind of thing. Then we are gone for uh, seven uh, years, and then the Lord comes back, and this is what is called his second coming, according to this theology. He comes back uh, with his saints, that is, with the church, and he then sets up this millennial kingdom that we're talking about, this thousand-year reign. So we disappear for seven years. We are raptured into heaven. We come back after seven years. During that time, all hell is breaking loose. There's different schemes, and we're not going to get into all of that this morning. But then there's a thousand-year reign. So you have the secret coming of Christ, and you have seven years, and in that time is the great tribulation, and then Christ comes again visibly with the saints this time, and then there's a thousand-year reign of Christ, and it's a literal thousand years. Again, uh, Revelation chapter 20 talks about this. In fact, why don't you flip with me there? I want to show this to you here in Revelation chapter 20 so that we are clear about what we are talking about here. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand, the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So it's at this point that many believe we now go into the thousand-year reign of Christ after this seven-year uh, time away. And then at that end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, he then establishes, after a final battle, Satan is released, and he establishes the new heavens and the new earth. Some people think that the millennium is simply symbolic, 
And they would say, well, we're not actually waiting for a future millennium. They are amillennialists, negating the millennium, no millennium, amillennial. And they believe that the church age actually represents the millennium. And so we are going through the millennium right now. It might not be exactly a thousand years. In fact, for us, since Christ has departed, we are talking about 2,000 years, if not more. And uh, there are many good Christians that believe this. We do not teach that here. Uh, Many Bible churches do not teach it. We do not agree with this teaching that says that the millennium is simply symbolic. It was really started in, in many ways by Augustine, who really popularized this teaching, that it is the church age, there's going to be no future millennium, that all we are waiting for is the coming of Christ, and when he comes, he's going to set up the new heavens and the new earth, and then that's pretty much it. It's a very simple scheme. So you have the church age, and then Christ returns, and there's the judgment, and then there's the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. Some people think, and they're called post-millennialists, that the millennium will happen at the end of this church age, that it actually happens before Christ comes, but they think that things are actually going to get better, that things are, are bad right now, but in the future, things will gradually get better and better, and that the gospel will eventually prevail in this world. Uh, Jesus Christ's gospel will go forward to the nations, and even though it's slow over time, the gospel will, will win, the gospel will conquer. And at the very end of this millennium, which is in this church age, Christ will finally come, but he won't come to an earth that is going through chaos and destruction. Rather, he will come to an earth that is full of peace and where people are living in tranquility and justice has been restored and so on. We don't teach that either. We believe that the Bible says there is a future millennium, but that there's no secret coming. What we are waiting for is the one return of Jesus Christ. So as we are Christians, we are living in this church age, we do not believe that at some point the Lord is going to come and snatch us out of this world for seven years. No, no. What we believe is that this world is going to continue to get worse and worse. There will be an Antichrist. We've talked about the establishment of the nation of Israel and all of these things. But all of a sudden, at one time, Christ is going to appear once. And the Bible says that we are going to meet him in the air. We believe in the rapture. Every good Christian believes that we're going to meet Christ in the air. Why why do we believe that? Because that's what the Bible explicitly says. So we meet him in the air. Christ comes, and uh, the dead in Christ shall rise first, the scripture says. And then we who are alive and remain will join him in the air. But we don't disappear. We come back immediately. So we meet him in the air, as the scripture says, and we come back with him to participate in this battle called the Battle of Armageddon. So here we are. We're in the air in the ancient world. 
Um, whenever there was a king coming into a city, very interesting, they would send out a delegation to greet the king. And so they would, they would send out this welcoming party to greet the king, to greet the dignitary, and then they would uh, walk him back or usher him back to the city that he was going to visit. And this is the picture of what the New Testament teaches and what the Old Testament teaches, is that we go to meet our king, we meet him in the air, and then we escort him back to his rightful place as the king of kings and the lord of lords. It's at this point that we have the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, this is the judgment as we talked about this past Wednesday. This is the judgment you want to be at. Because this does not have to do with whether you're saved or not. This has to do with rewards. And so every believer will um, stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. And uh, there are going to be some people who make it in by the skin of their teeth. And other people who live their life in Christ, in faithfulness, and who are going to be rewarded much. It's at this point that we have the millennium. And uh, this is a thousand-year reign. Some people say, well, is it exactly a thousand years? Well, it seems like that. But we do know that it is an earthly kingdom. It is the kingdom that Christ taught us to pray for. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Yes, he's talking about the kingdom that has already come, but he's talking also about the kingdom that is coming, the already and the not yet. And so then at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, we have this uh, raising of the dead of all those who did not believe. And this is going to be a terrible time because it's at this point that there's a great white throne judgment at the end of a thousand years. And all those who do not know Christ will be raised from the dead. All those who don't know him will stand before him. And one after the other will be declared guilty, guilty, guilty. There will be a final battle. Satan will be released to deceive the nations. There will be a final battle. And then there will be the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. So this is the scheme of things that we think the scripture teaches. That it seems clear in the Bible that there's one coming of Christ. That it is visible, it is literal, it is real, and it is imminent. That is, it could happen at any hour. And so we pray even today, even even so, come Lord Jesus. Now a question has to be raised as we talk about um, all of these different schemes. If we believe that certain things have to happen, which we do, which the Bible teaches, then the question is, how is the return of Christ imminent? That is, how could it happen at any hour? This is a precious doctrine that uh, we don't want to lose. It is um, so important to us. We, we dare not say, oh, Christ, he's not coming for another hundred years. We need to be expecting him. Lord, you could come back today. Lord, you could come back this week. Lord, you could come back soon. But if Israel has to be in her land, which these texts presuppose, 
Israel has to be in her land. If the Antichrist has to come, and it sure seems like the final Antichrist has not come yet, although uh, we could say that with a lot of these things, while it's unlikely, it is possible. Is it possible that the Pope is the Antichrist? Sure. So if the Antichrist has to come, if the nations of the world have to gather around her, that's what the scripture teaches us. How is the return of Christ imminent? If these things, some of them still seemingly need to be fulfilled, it seems like it seems like the Antichrist has still not come yet. Wayne Grudem says it's unlikely. The way he solves this is he says it's unlikely, but it's possible that he has come and he is here. So he would say a lot of these signs, some of these signs, while it's unlikely, we say it sure doesn't look like the Antichrist has come. It is possible that he has come, and that keeps us in this tension of saying Christ could come at any hour. But I want, I want to quote Spurgeon at this point, because when we get into this, we get into things that are way above my head. And um, when all else fails, quote Spurgeon and then maybe close. So that's what we're going to do. No. He says this. He says, will not uh, the Jews, will not the Jews be converted to Christ and restored to their land? Inquired my friend. That's Spurgeon's friend. Let me repeat that again. This friend says, will not the Jews be converted to Christ and restored to their land? Inquired my friend. I replied, yes, I think so. Surely they shall look on him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And God shall give them the kingdom and the glory, for they are his people, whom he has not forever cast away. The Jews, who are the natural olive branches, shall yet be grafted into their own olive tree again, and then shall be the fullness of the Gentiles. Now he's going to go on here. I'm going to keep quoting him here. But he says, the Jews have a place. This is Charles Spurgeon talking. He says, the Jews have a place. The Jews have their land. It's his belief that the scripture teaches this very clearly and that they must be in their land. And by the way, what he mentions here is um, once that happens, once Christ comes again, the fullness of the Gentiles will have taken place. The, the time of the Gentiles will be over. That's what he is saying here. Then this man asks, his friend asks this question. He says, will that be before Christ comes or after? Asked my friend. Will the Jews be in their land before or after? He said, I, I answered, I think it will be after he comes, but whether or no, I am not going to commit myself to any definite opinion on the subject. Then he goes on to say this. To you, my friends, I say, read for yourselves and search for yourselves. For still this stands first and is the only thing that I will insist upon. The Lord will come. He may come now. He may come tomorrow. He may come in the first watch of the night or the second watch or he may wait until the morning watch. 
But the one word that he gives to us all is watch, 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 end quote. This is the tension we live in. And there are questions regarding this subject that I have no answer for, and that doesn't mean that we, we just give up. I've heard many people say, well, you know, the only important thing is, you know, at least you're saved, and who cares, and I'm a pan-millennialist, and it'll all just pan out in the end. I hear people talk like that. Listen, if that's all God wanted to give us, he would have just said, okay, Christ died on the cross, be forgiven of your sins, and it would have been one short book, maybe a couple chapters. He gave us 66 books to peer into, to study, to inquire, to think about. So when we look at these, we don't just go, well, it doesn't really matter. It matters greatly. In fact, I'm, I'm concerned, greatly concerned, when I hear churches that say God has no place for Israel anymore. That's where their theology leads them to. Martin Luther, at the end of his life, was getting more and more anti-Semitic. And I, believed in, I believe, at least in some measure, in some part, as great of a man as he was, and I respect him greatly, that it was some of the things that he said about the Jews, some of his attitudes towards them, especially toward the end of his life, that contributed to the rise of Nazi Germany, and even churches abandoning the gospel to say, yeah, we can embrace Adolf Hitler. How does that happen? And I dare say, while there are many good Christians that differ greatly on this subject, and I'm sure we have Christians in this church that differ on this subject, and that's okay. But I dare say that the literal interpretation of the text, the simple meaning of the text, is the meaning of the text. And when God says that he has a plan for Israel, he has a plan for Israel. When he says he's going to restore them to their land, he means he's going to restore them to their land. When he says he's going to defeat all the nations of the world that surround Jerusalem, it literally means he's going to defeat all of the nations of, of the world that surround Jerusalem. That's what he means. And I believe it's the premillennial reading of the text that is the most literal the most beautiful and the most faithful reading of the text as we read through the Minor Prophets. So we believe in these things, and at the same time, we also believe Christ could come at any hour. And we say, Lord, you can work all of this out in your mind. Your mind, Lord, is so much greater than ours. Lord, we want to debate, and we want to study, and we want to learn about these different things, and we will continue because that's what you tell us to do to be faithful students of the Word of God. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to study the Word. But we're going to handle it with care, and we're going to love one another. And we're going to understand that brothers and sisters in Christ who really love Jesus and who are going to be in heaven with us and in the millennium with us, even the millennials will be there with us. That is the right thing to do, to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ with that hand of peace and with that hand extended of love. So let me be very clear just in case we're trying to figure out, okay, I heard millennium and I heard a bunch of different stuff. What, what are we talking about? We are talking about this. We are saying 
that the church right now is waiting for Jesus Christ to return. That's what we're waiting for. And we're waiting for a loud, noisy, visible returning of Christ. And when he comes, the first thing he's going to do is set up his millennial kingdom. So it's our age, looking at Christ coming, the millennium. With that said, let's turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Let's go through this relatively quickly here. We have this king, that is King Jesus is coming. And he's coming with power. The first five verses of Zechariah 14 talk about the king's coming. Verse, chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. And I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Notice, notice what God says here. He's talking here about the king's coming. But he says, I'm the one who's going to, I'm going to bring all the nations of the world against Jerusalem. It's the Lord who's going to do this. And um, we, we might be a long ways off. We might not be. Our eyes might see in our day the nations of the world gathered against Jerusalem because that's what the text says. And by the way, this has not ha happened yet. You can't find this text anywhere in history as already accomplished. In fact, I was reading about Luther when he got to Zechariah chapter 14. He didn't even comment on it. In fact, he wrote something like, I have no clue. I don't understand this because he said it's been fulfilled nowhere in the history of the world. Why is that? Because it's still future. So he says this, I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle, verse 2. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. That's a disturbing image. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord, here it is, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. What is he saying? The Lord's going to fight for them. So literally, Jerusalem's in big trouble. The nations of the world are arrayed against it. Women are being raped. The city is being pillaged. It is a dark time, and this seems like and sure looks like it is yet future. This is what the Bible is teaching. This is happening in the future. All hope seems lost at this point. Until verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Verse 4, and on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. So let's, let's break this down very clearly here. When the Lord comes back, his visible coming, we're going to meet him in the air. I'm going to escort him back to Jerusalem. The Bible says he's literally going to stand on the Mount of Olives. This is, this is history in the making. This is exciting stuff. And as he stands there, lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. You see, is this literal? It sure seems literal. 
And some of this, uh, we try to figure out, we, we do know there's apocalyptic language in different books of the Bible. Sometimes there's figurative and symbolic language, and we're trying to figure this out. But this is literal language. This could be an earthquake. This could be some just supernatural event. The Lord comes. This is an awesome sight. This is, this is the history of the world. We meet him in the air. He comes down to earth, stands on the Mount of Olives. It's split in two. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquakes, earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Who are the holy ones? It's us. And sometimes the Bible, when it talks about holy ones, it's talking about angels. This is why it's so exciting as we read the Old Testament. If we just read through the verses here, it's like, oh, this is, this is exactly what's going to happen. It's all laid out here for us. Christ comes back. He stands on the Mount of Olives. There's some kind of unbelievable event, and we're with him. And we see what he's doing here with the capital city, that is Jerusalem, Verse 6, he says, On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. Theologians have speculated about what, what does this mean? Does this mean, okay, it seems like maybe it's this dusk kind of setting. It's not really dark. It's not really light. Others have said, no, the, all the lights are going to go out, and it's just Christ who shines, at least for a period of time before the lights come back on. The truth is we don't have a certain interpretation about what this means, but there's some kind of supernatural occurrence that goes on with light and darkness that has to do with his coming. Verse 7, And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them, remember um, this, this water, this living water. By the way, it seems like there's literally going to be a literal river, a real river that it's talking about. But whenever we're talking about living water, we're also talking about spiritual water. Jesus stood up and he talked about living water that flows from him and through us, John chapter 7. He says, on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. There it is. He's the king. Your kingdom come. He's the king. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. A lot of people talk about why would the Lord come in this kingdom and establish this millennium here on this earth? Why doesn't he just wrap things up? Why doesn't he just go into the new heavens and the new earth? I think one of the things it does is it shows Satan what a true king of peace is like ruling on this earth. In other words, he's saying, you had your chance. We've seen your politicians. We've seen your dictators down through the years. We've seen your pharaohs and all of the different leaders. And all that's come of it for thousands of years is chaos. But when King Jesus comes, it's completely different. It's a rule. 
And it's a reign of peace, and it's the first time in this world's history it's ever been like that. Remember, soon after the Lord created the earth, and then created man and he created woman, they fell into sin. And it wasn't long after their fall into sin that you have Cain and Abel. And Cain rises up at the beginning of uh, human history and kills his own brother Abel. And uh, from that point on, from the sin of Adam and Eve, we've had sin and corruption, lying and cheating and stealing and murder, and we've had it all for thousands of years. And so Christ is coming and he's saying, I want to show my glory what it's like for a real king to rule on this earth. Let's skip to verse 11. And it shall be inhabited... For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. He says the Lord's coming. He's coming literally. He's coming at an hour that we don't know, so we need to be ready. And then he skips back and he begins to describe here this, this battle of Armageddon that's going to happen at his coming. So he comes, he comes with his holy ones, he comes with the saints, he defeats through the saints and with the word of his mouth all those who are opposed against him and opposed against Jerusalem. Verse 12, so now he's going back and he's describing what this battle, this battle of Armageddon is going to look like. Verse 12, and there shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. This is interesting, it says this, their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Is that possibly nuclear war? You have have people's tongues and eyes rotting instantly in their sockets, seems likely. Verse 13, And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. So at the return of Christ, not only is the human population affected, but also the animals. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. Who are they going to worship? They're going to worship Christ Jesus, the Lord of hosts, to keep the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was one of the required feasts that the Israelites Kept. They would make these uh, temporary shelters, these booths. They would live in them for uh, a week, and it would commemorate the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness, the protection of God, the faithfulness of God during that time of wandering. That's what this celebrates. And it's saying that the nations of the earth are going to stream to Jerusalem, the faithful ones, to celebrate this feast of booths, and they will worship the Lord. We had a powerful time of worship this morning in our singing. 
How powerful will it be when we all get to go as believers to Jerusalem to worship our King in person and to see him talk about we will all fall down. Kings will surrender their crowns. The greatest kings in all of history. Lord, it's yours. It's all yours. You're the King of kings and you're the Lord of lords. The worship will be unmatched. Beautiful. You don't want to miss it. The world's greatest worship service. The singing is going to be incredible. The preaching is going to be incredible. The fellowship. Year after year. And those of you who are believers, you'll never die. You believe Jesus said that I am the resurrection and the life? Remember he told that to Martha? John chapter 11. Yes, Lord. I am the resurrection, Jesus said, in the life. He that believeth in me, even though he were dead, yet shall he live. Huh. Year after year. Now, the interesting thing here is it's, it's evident that there are people still that are making decisions here about Christ and what they're going to do because there are going to be people who enter the millennium who are not believers, and they're going to have children. They're going to be believers as well. The Lord talks about those who do not go up. Notice what it says here. Verse 17, if in, And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells and the horses, holy to the Lord. He's saying, down to the utensils of your house, the regular stuff, your cars, your pots and pans. It'll all be holy to the Lord. Everything will be offered to the Lord. The smallest things in our life will be offered to the Lord. Service to Him. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bulls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. So that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord. T-R-A-D-E-R, not traitor, but traitor in the house of the Lord on the hosts, the Lord of hosts on that day. Remember the Lord was so exercised when he goes into the temple, and what does he see? He sees traitors everywhere selling, selling religious relics and sacrifices and animals and you name it, they were selling it. They were selling it to make money for themselves and there was not a spirit of worship, there was not a, a spirit of holiness in the place. And on two different occasions, the Lord went in there and he drove the money changers out. The Bible says when he comes again, there's going to be no more traders. All that is going to be taken care of. Everything is going to be 
holy, holy unto the Lord. So as we read through this text, we, we see as we're going through these minor prophets, why are they so important? They give us a, a clear understanding of where are we in history. And uh, we are not people with newspaper theology. We are not trying to figure out what country fits where in the scheme of things and figuring out dates and all of that. In the 70s, there was a book that came out. It was called uh, Late Great Planet Earth. And it seemed to map out everything, how everything was going to happen. And uh, perhaps you've even been in churches where they have whole charts of this is going to happen. Of course, we're not against charts. We would even use a chart for what we believe. But down to the smallest detail, here's what's going to happen. This is what this means, and on and on and on. I think we need to keep the main things, the main things, and the plain things, the plain things. And so when we talk about the return of Christ, we say a few things. We say it's literal. That is, it's actually going to happen, a real body. This is not some spiritual coming. This is Jesus Christ coming back in the flesh. And it's imminent. That is, it could happen at any hour, any day. And so we wait. And we say, this is what, this, this is what Christianity is all about. It is about asking the Lord for the kingdom to come, this real kingdom, this real kingdom, not just going up into some atmospheric place up in the stars floating around, a real kingdom. Would you stand with me? Father, as we look into this text, Lord, I pray that we would be ready. Lord, I pray if one has come in today and they don't know Jesus as their Savior, Lord, that you would um, prick hearts today. Lord, I pray that when we talk about your kingdom come, that we actually think about what is the kingdom, what the Jews were waiting for. And Lord, we want to partner in with that. We want to say that literal kingdom that they were waiting for, that's what we're waiting for. And we know who the Messiah is, the literal kingdom with the literal king. Lord, our heart is with this text of Scripture that we would worship the King. God, there's no greater desire that we have as Christians than to worship you, than to be in your presence. Lord, I pray you'd change us today. Use this text of Scripture to speak to us deeply. pray this in Jesus' name.